Our scripture passage for this morning comes from the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 18, as we read verses 10 through 14. Hear now the word of God. See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Thus ends the reading of God's holy, inspired, and inerrant word. May he lay its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Let's pray together. Oh God, would you protect us from ideas or distractions that might keep us from hearing your word this morning? Would you fortify us by your word so that we take to heart what your son Jesus says to us today? We also ask that you would protect us from favoritism or from despising any among your people. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. If last week's passage was about those who lead the sheep astray, today's passage is about the sheep that go astray. And if someone is a sheep, what it means is that they belong to Christ. They are his people. And so this is not a passage about those who are lost outside of the church. This is a passage about those who are lost inside of the church. Uh, Those who are Jesus' sheep, but they are struggling. This is a passage about the value of your fellow brothers and sisters within the church. And it's about the desire that Jesus has that we live in reconciliation and peace. And so Jesus leads off with that, doesn't he? This This whole passage is Jesus telling us not to despise other believers. That's his application. And I love, by the way, that our New Testament reading was about not despising one another. And of course, as you know, we are just working our way through Romans. And just providentially, we have these two passages here today running parallel to each other. Um, But he leads with that application that we shouldn't despise others. But the rest of of what he says is how he motivates us not to despise other believers. And so verses 12 to 14 are really Jesus's argument for why we shouldn't despise another believer. Now, it may seem a little unusual for me to do it this way, but I want to go backwards through the passage. And here's what I mean. What I want to do is I want us to walk through Jesus's argument So we can delight in the greatness and the gravity and the glory of the love Jesus has for his people. So that when at last we come to the application, and the application is, do not despise one of these little ones. So that when we come to that application, we will feel the weight of it upon us. And so in reverse, what we're going to do is reflect on the love of Jesus for his people. That's our first point. Then in point two, we'll see the rejoicing of the shepherd over his people. And then third, we'll get to Jesus's application, which is the care of believers for God's people. Jesus is committed not only to his people having good doctrine. 
but having love for each other that we actually put into practice. We are supposed to live these things out. And Jesus has a specific vision for what that's going to look like. And so first we have to consider the love of Jesus for his people. And you see it really come out in verses 12 and 13. Uh, listen to it again. It's a familiar parable, but it's also, it's, it's just lovely. He says, what do you think if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray? Does he not leave the 99 on the mountain and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 who never went astray. Uh, as we begin looking at this passage, I want you to notice the vulner- vulnerability of, of sheep. Just in general, the vulnerability of sheep. That Jesus uses sheep as his preferred metaphor to talk about his people. And it's a metaphor that, that makes so much sense, right? Sheep tend to wander off easily. Sheep have no defenses. They have no method of self-protection. They are completely and utterly under the care of others who will look after them. Right? You don't exactly see sheep walking around with claws to defend themselves or, or teeth that can tear uh, if somebody comes after them. They've got squat. Right? They have nothing. Um, notice, notice the defenselessness of the sheep even in some of the illustrations Jesus uses. Earlier in Matthew chapter 9, he said that when he saw the crowds, he had compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. So, so they have no defense if they have no shepherd with them. And you see that defenselessness of the sheep there again. You know, without a shepherd, there's no defense. This is the image Jesus chooses for us. This is the image Jesus chooses for his people. This is how Jesus sees us. This is how Jesus thinks of us. Right? He doesn't think of us as mighty, powerful warriors. He thinks of us as kind of silly animals that tend to wander around and bump into each other. And, and we, we have no defense when trouble comes our way. Right? That's, how, that's how our Lord thinks of us. Which might sound really insulting if he wasn't downplaying it a lot, actually. Right? Um, that's how the rest of Scripture talks about us, too, in the Psalms. In Jeremiah, in Ezekiel, this recurring image is used of God... And what's the image that he chooses for himself? Shepherd. He's the shepherd of Israel. Um, Even Israel with all of its weapons and armies is actually defenseless apart from God, the shepherd protector. Um, I know Psalm 23 is very famous, famously uses the image of the shepherd. But I think Jesus is specifically drawing from Ezekiel 34 here when he tells this story. Listen to Ezekiel 34 and listen to to what it says here. It says this. This is God speaking to Israel. He says, for thus says the Lord God, behold, I myself will search for my sheep and will seek them out. As a shepherd seeks out his flock when he is among his sheep that have been scattered, so will I seek out my sheep. And I will rescue them from all places where they have been scattered on a day of clouds and thick darkness. And I will bring them out from the peoples and gather them from the countries. And I will bring them into their own land. And I will feed them on the mountains of Israel by the ravines. And in all the inhabited places of the country, I will feed them with good pasture. And on the mountain heights of Israel shall be their grazing land. There they shall lie down in good grazing land and on rich pasture. They shall feed on the mountains of Israel. 
I myself will be the shepherd of my sheep, and I myself will make them lie down, declares the Lord God. I will seek the lost, and I will bring back the strayed, and I will bind up the injured, and I will strengthen the weak, and the fat and the strong I will destroy. I will feed them in justice. Think of all the, think of all the action words in that passage. I will seek out. I will search. I will rescue. I will bring them. I will feed them. I will make them lie down. I will bring them, bring back the strayed. I will bind up. I will strengthen. Do you see this? Who is the active one who comes to the shepherding of God's sheep? It is God. God is the active one. It's, he's the one who's at work. Given all of this background, go back to Jesus' question again, right? Jesus says, if a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the 99 on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray. You know, for me, uh, for you and I, the answer might be no. If we were the shepherd, we might not. I mean, after all, think rationally about this, right? It makes no sense for us to take care of the sheep we do have than to spend our energy, or it makes more sense for us to take care of the energy, the sheep that we do have than to expend our energy and resources chasing one sheep that we don't have. Or maybe one sheep that's constantly wandering and it constantly is getting itself into trouble and then it'll probably get itself killed one day, right? We, we may, in fact, do a financial calculus and say, you know, it's wiser not to be distracted by this one. Why not invest in the 99 who seem to be more sound, who seem to have it together, right? Better to not lose the 99, right? When you go after the one, There's this calculation we might make where we'd say, what if something happens to the 99 while we're not around? But we already saw it in Ezekiel, didn't we? He's a good shepherd. A good shepherd cares about his sheep individually. He seeks the lost individually. He knows his sheep and he knows their personalities and he cares for them. He cares what happens to them. The sheep are not simply a piece of financial calculus. They are deeply beloved. The loss of even one single sheep is unacceptable to Jesus because he's a good shepherd and not a calculating shepherd. The sheep are too precious for him to be indifferent or to just think of them as property or just think of them as numbers. Uh, I think it's healthy for us to think of ourselves as sheep. I think it's healthy for us as Christians not to think of ourselves as strong, not to find our strength by looking in the mirror, by remembering that our shepherd is strong. That's where our strength is. And so a healthy Christian is someone who's not constantly looking at themselves and saying, well, am I strong today? Am I ready to, to climb those spiritual mountains? Am I ready to beat those spiritual Goliaths? Look in the mirror, find that inner David And just crush the enemies. Get ready to go out there, right? Instead, a Christian says, I am cared for by the great and powerful shepherd who can never be defeated. Right? My shepherd is unstoppable and safe and powerful. That is a uniquely Christian approach to spiritual security. Uh, That's not an approach that other worldviews give us. Right? What What an incredible security we actually have in Christ. 
And what a, what a sense of security we would actually have if we realized that security of Christ instead of constantly looking for it in ourselves and constantly looking at our own lives to feel more secure. Here's one more thing I want you to, to notice that I think helps with this. Notice the love of Jesus for his sheep is not based in the sheep. The love that Jesus has for the sheep is based in his own free decision to love them. Which means this, that there is nothing that a believer can do to make Jesus love them more. And there's also nothing that you can do to make him love you less. Because of his freedom. Because his act of loving you is a free act that is not rooted in you. And what that also means is that the peace you have with God is not based on you and it is not rooted in you. So don't misunderstand, though, by thinking this means that Christians just live however we want because we have a constant get out of jail free card in our pocket. That's a misunderstanding of a project that Jesus has undertaken in each believer's heart. He has great plans for us. He has plans for us to live out holiness. But we do it from a position of peace and acceptance with God through faith in Christ. We live as Christians from a place of security, not insecurity, where he, <clears throat> the security we have is not a carrot that he dangles out in front of us and, and that he says, live the way I want you to, live the way I call you to, live out holiness, and you can have the carrot. He doesn't hold the carrot of security out to us and say, keep pursuing me and do it well enough and do it long enough. And if you can, you can reach out and you can take that security and you can finally have it. That is not what Jesus does. Instead, Jesus is the good shepherd who gives you the carrot. And he says, now you're safe. Now you're secure. Now follow me. That's a very different thing. That's a very different motivation to holiness, isn't it? Now, second, notice from this passage that re the rejoicing of the shepherd over his people takes place. Look at verses 13 and 14. You know, it finishes the story, really. It says, if he finds it, that is the lost sheep, the one. If he finds it, truly, I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the 99 that never went astray. So it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. Um, we should notice that we may not think about something we may not think about very much, depending on how you think of God. You may think of him as a stern disciplinarian. You may think of God as someone who is very distant, very far away, uh, uh, an, an observer of your life, right? You may have a, a thousand experiences in your background that have sort of fed into the picture uh, that you have of God. I just want you to know that you should not, that, that if you base your view of God on your experience, then you will be very dependent on Scripture to correct that experience-based view you have of God. And you should be dependent on Scripture to have that experience-based view of God. I mean, I've talked to people who have said, well, I have a very messed up view of God because of my father, or I have a very messed up view of God because of something that I've been through. And the answer, of course, is we should not be basing our view of God on our fathers. Our earthly fathers fail us. In many cases, they failed us very badly. Um, we have family experiences. Sure, they inform us. And this is why God's given us the scripture. Because our experience is not the place for us to look to know what God is like. 
Our experience is a poor informant to build our theology upon. We look to the word of God and we get corrected constantly when we look to the word of God. And here's a case in point, right? God rejoices in this passage. How often do we think of God as a person who rejoices? Do you think of God as happy? If you read scripture, what you start to see is that God is an infinitely happy being and he has infinite reasons to be happy. Um, you find this in a few places and in a few ways. Uh, sometimes you have to, to think a little bit about it. But, but Psalm 115 verse 3, for example, says, Our God is in the heavens. He does all that he pleases. Do you think of God as doing all that he pleases? It, it speaks of God's actions as something that, that please him. He, he can't be displeased ultimately because his will is always done. That's what the psalmist is saying. So when we say that God is sovereign, for example, what we are really saying is that God always has the power to do what makes him happy. Our God is a happy God. God never experiences frustration ultimately. Uh, Psalm 33, 10 to 11 says that instead of having his counsels frustrated, he frustrates the plans of the people. Um, The counsel of the Lord stands forever. The plans of the heart to all generations Um, one of the things that theologians have said is that if none of his purposes can be frustrated, then he must ultimately be the happiest being in all of the universe. He is the only being whose plans are never thwarted. When we think of God, we should think of him as one who's always happy. Uh, Job 42 two. Job says this. He says, I know that no, that I know that you can do all things and though no purpose of yours can be thwarted. Proverbs 16:33 says the lot is cast into the lap but its every decision is from the Lord. The author of Proverbs is telling us that even apparent coincidences are under the sovereign command and care of our God. Now I do acknowledge this may raise theological questions that may send us a bit off course from our passage. But if you have those questions, let's talk about that this week. Uh, reach out to me. Uh, But I want you to see that even when evil things happen, God is working, turning it for the good of his people. There is a reason why even even when evil things take place, the happiness of God isn't finished. Think of Joseph in the book of Genesis. In Genesis 50, one of the most evil things someone can do, Joseph's brothers, sell him into slavery. His brothers betray him and sell him into slavery because of their jealousy. And Joseph is able to look back on the evil that he experienced. And what does he say? He says, as for you, talking to his brothers, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. Even hard hearts lead to the fulfillment of God's plans and not ultimately to their frustration. In other words, even in the selling of Joseph, God is happily at work doing a greater good. Even hard hearts lead to the fulfillment of God's plan. Even the roll of dice, according to Proverbs, is decided by the rejoicing and powerful and happy God in heaven who does whatever he pleases and whose plans cannot be frustrated. Our God is a joyful God. Our God is a happy God. Our God is the fountain of happiness from which all other happiness is just a pale imitation. 
And in the person of Christ, we are told that God experiences incredible rejoicing as well. One of the places you might not think to look to hear about the rejoicing of Jesus is Isaiah 53. One of the saddest passages in the Old Testament. (laughs) Because in that passage, Isaiah is giving this prophecy about Jesus. Except the whole passage is filled with blood and gore and pain and thorns and whipping. And it says, out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous. And he shall bear their iniquities. Incredible thing here is that even in the suffering of Jesus, Jesus is happy. Because he said, because the text tells us he will make many to be accounted righteous and he shall bear their iniquities. Evil takes place and Jesus rejoices. How? It's not because he loves evil. It's because it's worth enduring it to save his people. He loves his people. He is satisfied by the work on the cross because of what it accomplishes. He loves his people more than himself. And so it makes him happy to die because he knows what he's doing for them. And he knows what they're gaining. There's something about reclaiming what was lost that the Son of God especially rejoices in. It's, it's why he came. It's the, it was the purpose of the incarnation for sinners to be rescued and redeemed by turning from their sin and placing their hope and faith in Jesus. Notice from Jesus' words here that the shepherd rejoices because he, he loves his people. Also notice again, That his love is not conditioned on something in the beloved. I mean, after all, that sheep was was just lost and wandering moments before. He was supposed to stay close. He was supposed to stay with the other sheep. There were rules here, and he didn't follow them. There's nothing worthy about the sheep except that the shepherd sought that sheep out. The shepherd's seeking of the sheep made it worthy. Anything lovely that that you might find in these sheep came from the love of God. And it wasn't based in the sheep's own loveliness or worthiness or, or goodness. What does John's first letter tells us? He says, we love because he first loved us. Right? He doesn't say he first loved us because we loved him. He's very intentional in the the structure of the argument. We love because he first loved us. His love is the foundation of our love. Whatever love we have... He had it first. He had it greater. Why am I belaboring this? Because you and I do have spiritual ups and downs. Um, We can feel steady and sure one day. And and the next day we may feel wretched and sinful and pathetic. uh, So much so that we can't even imagine that a glorious God would even be interested in us. And you go up and down. Your sense of, of holiness. Your sense of your own goodness Uh, ebbs and flows, sometimes violently. And the grace of God is our reminder that we don't make ourselves lovable. We don't make ourselves worthy. We simply cast ourselves upon Christ in faith, asking him to be our worthy one and for him to be our rescuer. Why? Because our shepherd is one who rejoices over God's people as we are rescued and as we return to the fold. Now, the previous two points are really the grounds of our third point this morning. And the thing Jesus has been aiming at 
is motivating his people to care for God's other people. Um, Look at the language of how Jesus says this again. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. For I tell you that in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father who is in heaven. See, this is the real fundamental application of all that we have seen up to this point. It's the application of what's been, been said and what's been going on. But I want to address the second part of the verse first, because as soon as you read it, you probably were like, I don't know what that means. Uh, and if you were following the family worship guide this week and you got to this one, you also probably sat there and went, I don't know. I do not know what this means. This, this verse says we shouldn't despise other believers because why? Because in heaven, their angels always see the face of my father. Some people think this is a verse that's saying that every Christian has their very own guardian angel assigned to them. Um, However, you really couldn't build that position off of this text because Jesus doesn't say that this angel protects the believer or goes with the believer in their, their daily life. Instead, Jesus says that the angel has one constant job that that he at least is willing to elaborate. He says this angel's job is that it always sees the face of my father. So angels, remember this about angels. Angels, this is true of angels and demons. They are not omnipresent. They are not like God who is everywhere, right? These angels are in heaven always seeing the face of the father. Now, I have to admit there is a ton of mystery here. Uh, And I would love to know more of what Jesus means by this saying. But the verse seems to be saying that there are angels in heaven who represent Christians in heavenly worship. Um, It doesn't say there's one angel for every Christian. It doesn't say there's a one-to-one ratio of them. It simply says that their, their angels always see the face of my father. Um, So if I could take what Jesus is saying, or at least what we can deduce from what he's saying, and maybe make it even simpler, I think Jesus is saying something like this. Do not despise other believers because we all live our lives before the face of God. Don't despise other believers because we all live our lives before the face of God. Jesus seems to be saying that there are angels that have something to do with that. But any answer that I think that we give beyond this feels very much like speculation. It's, it's sort of an example of how Jesus says that the things that just surprise us and that we want him to say more about. Wait, go back to that thing you said about the angels always being before the face of your father in heaven. And he doesn't do that. He doesn't give it to us. So better than speculating, we should take the larger point that he's making, which is far more comprehensible. The point that Jesus is making is that every follower of Christ is special. Every follower of Christ is important to God. Every follower of Christ is worthy of being proclaimed because God has set his love upon them. There's no place for any believer to be left behind. And this is a very real concern. We as Christians and as people who still struggle with sin can have a, we can have a worldly mindset. We can give preferential treatment to people who are more like us more useful to us, who are more sociable, who are more productive in our eyes, who are more worthy for one reason or another. Uh, There's a temptation for believers that the book of James addresses thoroughly. Uh, James is intent on dismantling this practice in the church of giving favoritism to some people who are more wealthy or who are 
more preferential. And Jesus just goes through intentionally wrecking that way of thinking here. Right? If you are like me, then that can often be a struggle. It's very easy to talk about loving all believers in Christ, especially at a high level. Uh, and it's a lot harder in practice. But Jesus is giving us real help here. His, his plan is not just to simply tell us what to do and then say, you guys figure it out. Um, his plan is that he gives us motivation here, right? Because what Jesus doesn't do is tell us to base our love on other believers, on their lovability. Do you see that? How he's not anchoring the love we have for them in them, right? He doesn't tell us that when other Christians are kind to us, then we should be kind to them. He doesn't say we should be kind because they've been kind. Uh, He doesn't tell us that the church runs on karma, right? Do something nice for me, then I'll do something nice for you. What have you done for me lately? That sort of thing. Instead, our kindness, our works of restoring others, our work of showing mercy and gentleness to other believers, what's it based on? What's it founded on? It is founded on the unchanging, rock-solid love that God has chosen to have for his people. And that love does not change like shifting shadows. The Christian doesn't show mercy because the person he is helping has been merciful. They may not have been merciful. He doesn't do it. He does it because this is one of Christ's people. Right? And, and God has said that he loves them with an everlasting love. He loves them. That's why we do it. And he doesn't love them on the basis of their works. He doesn't love them on the basis of their worthiness. He doesn't love them on the basis of their lovability or how great they are in conversation or what they can give to other believers or what there is to gain from that relationship. That's not how God loves. That's not why God loves. That's how the world loves. That's how the world around us operates. Because they haven't tasted and they haven't seen that the Lord is good. They haven't, they haven't known what it is to be loved. Not on the basis of what they've done. That's the only way the world has ever loved them. On the basis of what they do. On the basis of what they produce. On the basis of how they help. Right? The world's love is transactional. And not God. And not us, Jesus says. What does that look like in practice? What is Jesus calling for here? As far as this text goes, what he says in just these verses seems incredibly bare bones. He says, see that you do not despise one of these little ones. Now, in, in essence, that's it for this week's reading, just, just for this week's text. But if you have your Bibles and, and they're open, you can let your eyes drift down a little. And you can actually look at, at, in the coming weeks of our reading. Um, Next week, we're going to look at today's passage again, but I want to look at it from a very different perspective, specifically from the perspective of the sheep who's not in the fold. But um, the week after, we're going to look at how Jesus says to put into practice how to love other believers. Right. And and the week after that, we're going to talk about forgiving others and restore and pursuing restoration between us and other believers. So Jesus is not done talking about the application here, in other words. In the coming weeks, we're going to see more and more and more how it is that we're able to do these things. Because the text after that, Jesus says, let the children come to me. He's just he's just lay, he's lambasting us in the best way possible with application. He's about to show us what putting this into practice looks like. 
Jesus is going to be showing us example after example of what it means to live together in peace and harmony as Christians. He is showing us how Christians live together in community and how we put into practice that principle, do not despise one of these little ones. How can we do that? First, we have to know the love of Christ for ourselves. That may sound easy to some and that might sound unattainable to others, depending on where you're at. But remember what we already saw. God does not love his people because they are worthy, but because he is kind. So the New Testament does not place a heavy burden on us so that we can know the love of God. He doesn't tell us to live up to the standards so that we can have peace with him. He tells us simply, believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Scripture tells us, whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. He does not say, the person who calls on the name of the Lord and lives up to God's standards and loves his neighbor perfectly and satisfies all of my justice, that person, that person will be saved. No. Believe on the Lord Jesus. Call on the name of the Lord. That's a word I would share with you right now. That if a lot of these things that we've been talking about have been just gone right past you, you're like, you keep saying God has this love. And I'm saying that I, have, I do not know that love. I have not experienced that love. All I ever feel when I think of God is his anger. All I ever think of when I think of God is how badly I have disappointed him throughout my entire life. And I only feel like a failure. And if that is you, then call on the name of the Lord. Believe on the Lord Jesus and you will be saved. Second, how can we keep from despising one of these little ones? I think Jesus will tell us, right? In in two weeks, we're going to see how important it is to confront other believers when they sin, right? And then the passage after that tells us that, that husbands ought to love their wives and wives ought to love their husbands. And Jesus goes on and he tells us that we need to be long-suffering and forgiving toward each other. He tells us that we should be quick to forgive. He's going to keep doing this as we move through Matthew. And we're able to do these things, but not because we are great and not because we are strong and not because we are just dispositionally kinder than other people. Um, but because the God in whom all of these things are based is himself great and glorious and forgiving and unchanging. Right? The love of God is the basis of what we do. And that love never wavers or drifts or changes for his people. Even if our feelings and our experiences do drift and change. I want to conclude by doing the sanest thing I can possibly think of in this text. By turning your eyes to Jesus and to his love so that you have a strong anchor upon which to base everything we've just seen. The New Testament is filled with promises that God's love for his children is so great that he will never allow a single one to perish. So as his sheep, here's what we need. We need to be reminded of the greatness of our shepherd and we need to be reminded of the skill that he has as a rescuer. There's this, there's this, you know, when the shepherd goes out to, to catch the one, to reclaim the one, he is not, it's not Adam Parker going out and doing that. Like if I was to go out and be a shepherd, I would find the sheep and I'd be like, what do I do now? Am I supposed to run in front of it? Am I supposed to scare it? Am I supposed to try to get it to walk backwards? Or yeah, well, I would be a terrible shepherd, right? 
But, but Jesus, when he goes out, he is the great shepherd, right? He's like the Bear Grylls survival expert of the shepherds, and he knows exactly how to do it. And there's this rich tapestry of passages in the New Testament that tells us that God is the one who reclaims the lost. And for his people, he's absolutely committed to making sure that, that they're raised up on the last day. Think of John's gospel. John's gospel, in, in John's gospel, Jesus promises that he will not lose even one of the father's precious sheep. All that the father gives to me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. That's a shepherd who can save. And later on in John's gospel, Jesus drives this promise home again. He says, he says, I give them eternal life and they will never perish and no one will snatch them out of my hand. That's a good shepherd. My father who has given them to me is greater than all and no one is able to snatch them out of the father's hand. So as a believer, you are in the hands of Jesus and you are in the hands of the father. Is there a safer place to be in all the universe? Paul, Paul makes nearly the same point in that glorious passage in Romans 8 where he runs through that golden chain of redemption and he reminds us that there's nothing in all of creation that you could possibly imagine that could separate you as God's child, as God's sheep from the love of Jesus. Our God is a faithful God. Now, we are not always faithful sheep. In fact, we're frequently unfaithful. This is why Jesus portrays God as the shepherd and not us. He never, he never works to build up our self-esteem as sheep. He never, never tries to say something like, you're a really good sheep. You know, there are no passages where he, he tells us that. He, he's always reassuring us by pointing at himself. He's never reassuring us by pointing us at us, right? A, sh- a shepherd motivated by love, which he has purposed toward us, he has decided to have toward us, and which he is perfect at. He's a perfect shepherd. What does that mean? We saw it already, didn't we? Because, and we'll see it in the coming weeks as well. The next passage in the text builds on this. God loves his people so much that he wants us to live together alongside of each other because we've got the same rescuer. He expects us to confront each other when we sin. He expects us to sin, right? He, he knows that we're disappointing sheep. It's built in, you know, in the next passage. He's going to say, when you sin against each other, when you have sins against each other, because he doesn't think that just because he's redeemed you and just because he's rescued you, well, now everybody should be good. Instead, he knows that we still live in the here and the now, and we still wait the change that's coming. He expects us to confront each other. He expects us to correct each other. He expects us to reclaim each other. He expects us to be his tool in restoring other believers. He expects us to sin. He expects us to confess. He expects us to repent. He expects us to forgive all over again. And when that happens, it's really God who's doing those things. It's really God who's reclaiming us. And he's using the love and the ministry of of others that he's worked into them. To accomplish it. We've seen why he does this. 
because he has decided to set his love upon us. And because of that, we can hang on to the promise of Jesus that it is not the will of my father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. And for a God for whom no purpose of his can be thwarted, that isn't just a good intention. It is an absolute promise. Let's pray together. Oh God, we pray that we might be brought in your word to comprehend what is the breadth and length and height and depth and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that we might be filled with the fullness of God. Keep us, O God, from fear or insecurity and instead remind us of our position as your children and what it means for us and for the ways that we're meant to love our brothers and sisters. It is in the name of Jesus, the rejoicing one, the Savior, that we pray. Amen.